Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Deutsche Grammophone International Podcast Series. I'm Sarah Willis, and when I am not passionately podcasting, I'm playing my French horn somewhere around the world. It's always a delight to podcast with the Yellow Label's star-studded cast of musicians. For my guest today, I wasn't just handed one new album to listen to. I was handed a box set containing 100 discs with a 200-paged booklet. So after the initial, when am I going to find time to listen to all those panic, I started getting excited about so many pieces in this collection, which I actually had never heard before. It's been like diving into a Baroque wonderland and has made me very excited to talk to my guest today, who for me is a legend. So because there's so much to talk about, let's get started. Trevor Pinnock is a British harpsichordist and composer, and I'm so honoured that he's joining us today on the Deutsche Grammophone International Podcast Series. Trevor, it is so fantastic to see you. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Trevor and I are separated uh, by two countries. I'm sitting in Germany and Trevor's in England. And of course, the first thing we did when we got online together was talk about the weather, because that's what Brits do, right, Trevor? That's what that's just uh, part of our <laughs> part of our DNA. And I've just explained in my introduction that usually for the Deutsche Grammophone podcast, I'm given one CD to listen to. One album, the new album of whoever I'm interviewing. And for the listeners, I am now going to show Trevor what I'm holding in my hands. This is enormous, Trevor, this box of, <laughs> of, of CDs. There are 100 discs in here and the booklet is 200 pages long. Do I get overtime on this or what? Oh my goodness. Yes, I haven't seen it yet. You haven't seen it? Well, basically, for the listeners, it's bigger than my head. We will send you a screenshot. It's enormous. Look at that. How does that make you feel to see this great big collection? Actually, it's it's 50 years of your of your life. Gobsmacked, really. I mean, the funny thing is all of that happened uh, more than 20 years ago now. So it's like something of a former life. Because I can imagine, yeah. You know, life goes on in stages. You move through... I'm very lucky. It's always been a sort of voyage of discovery for me. And I find that now I have the same excitement of discovery that I ever had when I started the English concert. But then looking back at the English concert days, that seems like a, almost a different me. You really, you really feel that? It's like a, a really completely different Trevor Pinnock to, to the... You left in 2003, so that's actually quite a long that's time right. ago. But, but it, yes, 20 years. But it's still, it's never stopped. People, I mean, for, for me growing up, the English concert was Baroque music. I mean, that, that was the way I discovered it. I mean, you've been going, this is 50 years ago where these were done, and I must say you don't look it at all. Well, thank you. Isn't it funny? I mean, how did we get there? I think it... I have to look right back at my whole of my musical life, really, because I started as a choir boy at Canterbury Cathedral. And that's where, really where I, be, I became a professional musician. I think the great thing I learned there was the importance of listening and music being more about listening than it is about doing in many ways. And I needed all that listening when we started the English concert because... I'm not any sort of scholar. I never went to university, anything like that. So everything I learned 
from the music really came out of the music itself. Of course, I tried to back it up with uh, scholarly readings and that sort of thing. But I remember being very daunted when I first met the wonderfully generous and friendly Christopher Hogwood, who seemed to know vast amounts and could tell me everything and all sorts of things that amazed me I'd never even heard of. I felt quite undermined by this. But in the end, I got it worked out that I my source is different. It's I've always had a rather strange way of learning things. And it, it just comes from the music itself. And so I have to go on instinct first. And then after that, then I have to back it up with any sort of book knowledge. What a funny business that is. It is a totally funny business, but what you're describing with Christopher Hogwood is how I felt as a horn player being presented with 100 discs by Trevor Pinnock, because I thought <laughs> that, there is so much I do not know about this music. There's composers in there I've never heard of. There are pieces I had no idea. There were so many Telemans, so many Corellis, so many. I mean, it was incredible. I did find some horn players on the recordings, which I was very happy about. My teacher actually is on them. Anthony Halstead. Oh, yes. He did some splendid stuff. Some of those Haydn symphonies with the very high horn parts. He he was the only one that dared. (laughs) Yeah. He was the only one that dared to go and do those on on the natural horn. But you've given us, or you gave us with the English concert, I mean, to talk about it all, we need a five-hour podcast. And also, because as you say, you've gone on, you've left 20 years ago, but but this podcast, I really want to talk about your time then, because the Mm. people who are going to be enjoying this, this amazing box, and there's so much in there, want to know a little bit about those beginning days, because the English concert grew out of 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 a trio, didn't it? Yes, when I was at the Royal College of Music, I started a trio with two musicians, Stephen Preston and Anthony Pleath, who were at the Guildhall at that time. And we managed to get various concerts around music clubs in England. In those days, there were a lot of music clubs. And we put on our own concerts at the Purcell Room, which had just been built, 180-seater hall. And we found that we could fill that. And if we filled it, that would pay all our expenses and maybe just a little tiny bit over. So we were quite regular visitors there. And we started in 1966, I think, and went till 1972 when my colleagues rather fell out with each other. And so the trio split up. It had run its course. Six years was long enough for a flute and a cello and a harpsichord playing together. And yeah, but you paid your expenses. I, I, I'm horrified that it was only your expenses. I thought you would have earned a lot of money if you were selling out the Purcell room. Oh, no. You know, it costs a lot of money to put on a concert. Really, oh, you had doing... to pay for that. You had oh, to yes. pay for the putting the concert. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And You know, we were a sort of peculiarity rather on the side of things, but we were very warmly received. In those days when we started, we were on modern instruments. and But by 1972, we were thinking of changing. And the English concert grew out of that. And I was able to draw together a group of musicians, seven people to start with, 
and start exploring things. It was always difficult to do because people had to do their other jobs to earn their money. It was a mixture of people who could really play professionally with the English Chamber Orchestra and other orchestras and other people who were more into teaching and into research and knew a lot about the old instrument side of things. And we just found our way through. And the way through was listening to the instruments and then discovering how to make a language, a living language. Because the establishment of language is is really the absolutely essential thing. Because once you've established a musical language, then the musicians can communicate with that using musical responses rather than just trying to do something that they feel should be done. That's very true. But to do that, you need instruments, unless you're a singer. And where did you get these first instruments from? Because I don't actually remember. I'm sure there were people playing on period instruments, but I don't remember hearing about that. I remember discovering the English concert first at, oh, yes. at the, the, the period. Instrument. I mean, I remember you said someone, people, you, you were just being described as hippie musicians with strange instruments. <laughs> that was a quote somebody <laughs> yeah, I think I wrote that. I looked at the photos of us in the late 1970s when we first went to the Ansbach Bachwocker. And uh, of course, all the audience were dressed rather extravagantly and very well dressed. We were in these flowing frocks, Indian frocks for the ladies. And we all had very long hair. Um, <laughs> And I don't know what they thought, really. But in the end, the music has to speak for itself. And people found instruments, all sorts of instruments, some of them not very good. And gradually things have had to get better on that front. But these were all tools to us exploring new sounds and then creating new language out of the sounds. That was something that needed to be done. And it was really my mission, because I felt there were fantastic performances going on at that time with the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, say. But somehow we were at the end of a road. There was no further to go without new discovery. Then there were the enticing sounds of Gustav Leonhardt's group in Holland and uh, Nicholas Arnemcourt's group. And I saw that people were exploring new things and I wanted to do that, but within my own reference points. What and were your reference points? My own feeling about music inside. I had always had to follow that. It's the only thing I could follow. But at that time, you know, everybody was coming from the conventional field. When I was scrolling through YouTube one day recently... I found an old recording of Gustav Leonhardt involved in playing Telemann with uh, André Rieu leading the no. orchestra. <laughs> yeah, uh, who took a completely different path. But you see, that's where it all comes from, that everybody just came out of, of music and then following their own uh, paths that they have to follow. 
Well, you say you did a lot with, with instinct and your own musical ideas, but in studying Baroque music, you do learn that if an ornament is like this and a turn is like this and a trill should be like this if you if you go up or come down to it. You know, you do learn these rules, but um, it seems yes. like a lot of rules for this style of music. Yeah. I, the extraordinary thing is over the last 50 years, some of those rules that I've learned have been changed back and even changed back and then changed back again, a double circle. And so some of the rules are right and some of them are not necessarily right, but there's rather more flexibility than you'd think there. And, of course, we were quite obsessed with rules at the first. But one thing I did learn quickly is that whatever rule there is, unless you've managed to sort of digest it and put it into your body, then the musical outcome is not likely to be very good because it just sounds as if it's a bit of sticking plaster with a rule on it. What I loved was reading the way you described it. You called it freedom founded on order. And I just loved that description because it has to have an order first. I mean, all types of music need an order. But you found in the Baroque mm. music this type of freedom. I mean, in those days, it, it was it was like rock stars. You were improvising, you know, you were changing things around. Things were happening differently every evening. And that's what like Latin music or jazz, they, they do that today, but just with different harmonies. So I guess as a harpsichordist, you were like the leader of the band. Yes, we were pretty strict to the page, really. Not as crazy as some other later groups, perhaps. But I was always very concerned to be respectful as well as being adventurous. And I think that's important. But you're right, there has to be order and there has to be language to put everything in context. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense at all. And I think... One of the problems for orchestras now, perhaps even playing Mozart and that sort of thing, conventional orchestras, is that they don't do it very much and somebody comes in and tells them some things. So from my experience as a conductor... I, re- I remember that well, Trevor. <laughs> you remember we, we were trying... <laughs> yeah, I, I might go into an orchestra and quite often an orchestra will decide, oh, Trevor Pinnock, Uh, let's play non-vibrato and make this and that articulations. They've learned that they should do these sort of things. But in fact, they're coming at it from the wrong basis. The non-vibrato is a sort of negative because they're just taking away. It doesn't have a reason and it doesn't have something that you've got to do to make it sound good. It's just non-vibrato or the articulations just articulations. They're not integrated into a, a, a line which is going forward to give it more expression. So all of these little rules that people take on are quite dangerous if they haven't had time to sit. So what would you call being adventurous in Baroque music? Well, the adventure for me in Baroque music in any music that I do. The adventure is in the journey for me. Every piece I play, every time I play it, it's always a new performance, even if I know something very, very well. So it's, uh, and we start out on the journey 
with a definite view of where we're going. But of course, conditions underfoot might be different, you know. It might be a wet day or it might be a dry day. The sun might be shining or not. And it's the same in music. You're always reacting to things. And if you're playing in music with other musicians who are given the freedom to do things, then because somebody does something, then you have to do something else. And the whole thing is always a, a very live journey. And this is what I love about going back and listening to all these recordings. Some I'd heard, some, I, as I said, I had absolutely no idea about. And some are being released for the first time in this album. There's something from Samson, I think, that, I, that I, I'd never come across before. Do you know what's in here? And could you say if you had any favourites at all? Isn't that difficult? Faith I know. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to ask you that. It's cruel. It's you know, cruel. It's, it's, well, it's, it's a bit like asking a parent who is their favourite child. Could okay, you answer then fav- the question? You know? Favourite is the wrong word. Do you have some memories that really stick out of any of these recordings? Because, I mean, there, there must have been many, many stories attached to all these. And I, you, you've recorded, you spent like, years of your life in recording studios, you know, looking at your discography. I tell you what does spring to mind as you ask the question. One is I loved preparing and recording string symphonies by Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach because this was such a strange sort of music and so adventurous in itself breaking free of his father and exploring really new paths. And they were challenging technically and really exciting. So I remember that as a special sort of visceral experience with the whole ensemble. And then I think I would go to the Opus 6 concertos of Handel, which are Great, that's Handel's great grand concertos. That seemed to suit us very well, that music. How's that? How, how does it suit? And I mean, I'm writing this down, Trevor, so that I can go home and listen to exactly these again. But if you say this music suits, it's interesting because like people say about my orchestra, Mahler, Strauss and Bruckner suits us. Mm. So how does a Handel, what was it about the English concert that made them so suited just, to this music? It comes to back to that thing of language, doesn't it? Somehow we were very at home in that English music and then that gives our ability as musicians to play the music comfortably with each other. It makes it that much more easily. The music seems to carry itself. You will have experienced that with the music that the orchestra really knows well. And then you can get into less comfortable zones where people really have to try and work out. It becomes more process and less just following the flow. I wanted to ask, were there in those days early music classes like the college and the academy and the guild hall? Because these days you learn it. And and I I thought, for example, the singers that you have in this collection, like David Wilson Johnson, Barbara Bonney, um, singers, amazing singers, but they're not particularly known for their Baroque singing. And had they been taught in a way to sing Baroque or is that is that not a thing? People just sing as naturally as they can or have you, had you worked with them or could you learn no, that? I hadn't, I hadn't worked with them, especially in that way. They were voices I liked 
uh, they used them sen- sensibly and sensitively. And so that was very good for me at that time. But could you study early music? Could you study Baroque music at the, at the colleges as an instrumentalist? I mean, Christopher Hogwood knew everything, as you said. That was a real passion because he came from an instrument that was highly involved in, in the music he was yes, playing. Yes, I mean, there was a tremendous background in Cambridge scholarship on early music performance. I think when I went to the Royal College of Music, there was very little. I had a wonderful teacher there, Millicent Silver. And what a fantastic and, name. Yes. Millicent. She, she was just but it wasn't really so much teaching about period instrument playing. Although I can tell you about the best lesson I ever had, which I'd so much admired the playing of Gustav Leonhardt, and I tried to copy uh, the way he played a Bach partita. And in fact, because I was 18 I, and felt I was rather good, I decided that I'd played it even better than he had in his style. So I went to play it to my teacher and I was playing away, feeling very pleased with myself and thinking I'll teach her how to play the harpsichord. And suddenly <laughs> I heard from the corner of the room this older lady saying, what on earth do you think you're doing? And my balloon of pride deflated <laughs> immediately. And I'd been pulling the music round outrageously without any thought or anything. And sometimes when I hear performances, I hear this little voice saying that. Funny, I was talking in the break today of my orchestra's rehearsal. I was telling a few of my brass player colleagues that I was going to be doing a podcast with you today. And they all said, oh, my goodness, Trevor Pinnock, his English concert has the best rhythm of any orchestra. And they said, why can't symphony orchestras have that sense of rhythm? Because really, it, it's such a it's such perfection. And orchestras drag, gets get faster, rush, mm. uh, do big expression fermatas. But the English concert is like, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like Latin music. It just starts and it goes. You know, this is, you're probably lighted on the most important thing in music making. One of them is, is the fundamental rhythm. And I'm thinking about this a lot at the moment because I, I've been conducting various Mozart symphonies recently and next week I'm doing Schubert's Great Symphony. And I've suddenly realised that with a whole lot of these symphonies, I actually play the whole symphony in this, basically the same tempo. Uh, I mean, the the minuet and trio, they're related tempi, but there is a tact which remains the same throughout. Far from making that boring, it actually allows you greater variety because you can move away from that. You can take your time, you can speed up. But everybody, the whole orchestra, but also the whole audience knows fundamentally what the pace of a piece is. And so it's like a long-distance walker. You know, we're all walking together in the same way. And it occurred to me that 
in former times, before the uh, metronome especially, everybody did everything by relation to their heartbeat and had a much stronger rooted feeling of connection to earth rhythms than we do. And this is kept to some degree really in jazz and in popular music, but in classical music, we've rather lost sight of that, even the musicians. And is it because we're called upon to play so much different music without really immersing ourselves deeply into the language of that music? You know, a lot of what we're doing with the music is doing sticking plaster uh, sort of mode of, oh, do this like this, do this like this, to get this together like this, do it like that, without really understanding the fundamental or feeling uh, the relationship of fundamental sort of earth-type pulse running through. And it's quite interesting. It occurred to me when I was thinking about this that, of course, orchestras of old times mostly played music that they knew which was written in their time. They didn't have to play all sorts of music. And so we have a tremendous challenge if we're going to do this. But I find now that when I'm going into an orchestra, the first thing I want to do is to establish this sort of unity of of pulse and feeling. That it's not something I talk about specially. It's something which I have to generate. And then... If I do that well, I, I see, I hear at the moment that the musicians can simply get on with their job better because there's a, a sort of comfort level. And you will have experienced this with certain conductors who do this. Somehow you just know where the music is and then you can just play. That's absolutely fascinating what you're saying. It's not just for Baroque music, it's for all music. You know, if you listen to, say, Rachmaninoff playing the piano, he has this incredible rhythmic power and sense to the playing. He doesn't gratuitously pull it around, but there's lots of expression. And when you contrast that with how a lot of pianists do it and pulling it around, say somebody from outside doesn't really quite understand why, You know, it probably feels better doing it like that than it sounds to other people. But when you go back to Rachmaninoff, you see the huge discipline and musical sense. I wonder if you could play Rachmaninoff on the harpsichord. Well, I couldn't, (laughs) but uh, I don't think I'd... Uh, I don't think I'd fancy that idea, really. <laughs> no, but I must say we did get quite modern in your box set because in the middle, hidden away, is the Poulenc Concerto. Oh, that's in there. Oh, yes. That's in there. That was that was very nice. What was especially nice was uh, working with Ozawa, who was a musician I admired always such a lot. It's great sensitivity. There's a lovely picture of the two of you in the booklet. The booklet is 200 pages long. I tell you, this has been quite a research for this podcast. But there's some fantastic photos of, of, of you and, and the English concert musician, of, of, of Stephen, of Simon, and also, it's just really, and, and of you and Ozawa. Yeah. Haven't you? You haven't even yeah. seen it they, yet. No, I've seen, I, they've it. Sent, they've sent, I haven't got the box, but they've sent me this, this and I looked through 
yesterday and I saw these pictures, one with the Zara, one with Bernstein, of course, and with all my lot, how lovely that was, tremendous. I'm, I'm absolutely amazed and stunned that they would put together all these recordings. It's, it's very well, flattering. It- it must have been an amazing moment where where Deutsche Grammophon for their it's called Archive. I think you'd probably say Archive uh, Productions when they yes. when they came to you and they said let's do this. Yes, I mean that was amazing because I'd grown up knowing of some archive as we called them in in England archive recordings, and that was a very famous series, you know, and, and to be invited to go and do some of the most major works of all, you know. What a responsibility. Pretty daunting. And also, as it transpired later on, they asked us to do more and more things, like that whole Mozart set. And not only giving us time to do them properly, but also paying for rehearsals for the symphonies that I couldn't take into the concert hall. Unheard and of. Nowadays, <laughs> to just, you know, you virtually pay for your own recordings nowadays. But in those days, they were putting a considerable budget into trying to do the job properly. And at that time, I'm ashamed to say that I didn't realise what an incredible gift that was to me. Somehow it seemed normal as part of how things were but the relationship with Deutsche Grammophon was always very important and at the heart of our work it's it's been a a gift for us all, Trevor. Really, to to have this, especially as this this speaking as a horn player, as I said, to to be, have this archive production, complete recordings of the English concert, who were for me when I was growing up and and studying and learning about natural horn from Tony Halstead, and just to have these recordings all together in one box, it's it's a great gift and uh, it's great well, great it's, for Christmas. Go on, you can you can give them all to your friends for Christmas. It's a it's a one. It's it's a wonderful gift for me. You know, I got used to people bring recordings after concerts to have them signed, you know. It used to be the old vinyls, of course. And uh, and sometimes somebody would come and say, say, oh, I've got all your recordings. I'd say, thank you very much. And often that would happen. And then one day, somebody, young chap, came to me and I greeted him and he said, Oh, my mum's got all your recordings. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Trevor. Oh, time's gone on. <laughs> now I have all your recordings, at least. And, and 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 dear listeners, I am now I've now picked up the box again, and I'm doing a few uh, arm exercises with it. It's enormous. It's got a lovely picture of you, Trevor, on the front. And I I'm just very grateful that you've come along today to the podcast to talk about it. Oh well, thank you. It's been such a thrill doing all that music. I mean, what an amazing range of music there is in there. And, I mean, that that was just up to 2003. So the next podcast we do will be all the years since then. So uh, we'll have to set that one up soon. (laughs) Oh, yes. Well, I've just been recording a most interesting arrangement of Bach keyboard partitas for small orchestra by a man called Thomas Erler with students at the Royal Academy of Music and from the Glenn Gould School in Toronto mixing together. 
wonderful. But it made me think of the English concert because in these arrangements, we had to establish what's the language we're going to play as we tried to find the sounds. And gradually we found it. And it's very exciting because it's not like normal Bach. It's nothing like his ordinary orchestral writing. So we couldn't play it like that. And it's keyboard music arranged for orchestra. It's very fascinating colours. Life's exciting, whatever music we're doing. And on that quote, I don't think there's any other better way to finish this podcast and say thank you very, very much for joining us and telling us about how this, these wonderful recordings came to life. And uh, I'm sure everyone is going to love going back and listening to them all. I wonder if everyone's going to listen to them all in one go. I think that would take, oh that my would take God. weeks. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us it's been it's been such a pleasure and also to see you again even if it's on on screen yes my pleasure indeed bye-bye now one more thing if you've enjoyed today's podcast with trevor and you'd like to hear more of our podcast series do subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcast from i'm sarah willis it's been a pleasure being with you today and hope to see you again very soon 